Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, February 23rd, 2024. In this week's episode, guilty on all charges was the verdict for a father who beat his five-year-old daughter to death following a trial in which he didn't even bother to show up for the proceedings. Plus, trial begins for the armorer charged in the onset shooting that left a cinematographer dead and the possible implication should actor Alec Baldwin face a jury on similar charges. But first, let's break down the indeterminate sentencing for a parenting YouTuber who pleaded guilty to multiple counts of child abuse. I'm flying solo this week, so let's just jump right in. First out of St. George, Utah, a controversial parenting influencer could spend decades behind bars after pleading guilty to child abuse charges. Ruby Frankie, a mother known for her popular YouTube channel, quote, Eight Passengers, which at one point had millions of subscribers, received a sentence of four to 30 years behind bars. While a judge sentenced Frankie to a period of one to 15 years for each charge, her sentence will ultimately be determined by by the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole and cannot exceed a 30 year sentence. Some spectators of the case have been critical of the momfluencer's indeterminate sentence due to the horrific details of the abuse suffered by Frankie's children. She was initially arrested after her 12-year-old son escaped his restraints and fled to an adjacent home where a concerned neighbor called 911 in tears due to the boy's extreme condition. Officials later uncovered Frankie's nine-year-old daughter, who was restrained and had suffered similar abuse. The children were denied food, isolated, and forced to do manual labor without shoes or sun protection as part of an extremist religious doctrine brainwashing the children to believe that they were atoning for their sins. Frankie claimed that she had been convinced by her former uh, business partner, Jody Hildebrand, that the extreme punishment was necessary and that the world was an evil place. Hildebrand, who also pled guilty to the same four counts, has received the same sentence of one to 15 years for each charge to run consecutively, with prosecutors indicating Hildebrand should spend more time behind bars for being the alleged ringleader of the torturous practices. Here's here's some interesting thoughts about this. First of all, that is bizarre 
to see a, a range in years so vast like that, one to 15 years. Oftentimes, judges have sentencing guidelines. And those in California, where I practice, you will see those in what they call a, a triplicate form, low term, midterm, and high term. And so if somebody, you know, for a robbery, for example, it might be two, three, or five years. Low terms, two years. Mid terms, three years. High terms, five years. And the judge usually operates within those parameters based upon certain aggravating and mitigating circumstances. To have a case range from one to 15 is really vast. Now, this, I think, is a good example of how practicing the law is different in every state. In fact, it's sometimes different even within the states. I practice all over the country. I've handled cases all throughout California and in different parts of the country. And it is amazing to me that being a lawyer in one state, it's almost like I'm relearning how to practice when I go to another state or even another county within California. Now, what Utah is doing here is they're basically saying for this crime, we believe that there's a sentencing guideline of between one and 15 years, that there's conduct that can fit that crime that can range in its um, uh, seriousness that we could see where somebody could be sentenced to one year for it or even up to 15 years for it. The interesting thing here, though, is that's not being decided by the judge. That's being decided by a different department of probation in Utah. And is that a better way of doing things? My biggest kind of uneasiness with all of this is that I believe defendants should have an idea to some extent of what they are going to receive when they decide to plead guilty to something. She might have vastly different thoughts about pleading guilty and receiving 15 years on each of these four counts. Now she's looking at 30 years in prison. Then she would feel about receiving four years in prison on this. And might that affect her decision to even go through with pleading guilty um, and or go through a trial? And I, I, I don't think it's properly advising the defendant of the consequences of their plea when it's such a vast range. Now, I've heard experts speak about this. Many people believe that the, the range she's actually going to be sentenced to is going to be closer to around the 10-year mark. Maybe that's what's been explained to her by uh, her attorneys who have an experience in practicing law in that area and how the probation uh, department will react to this. I've also heard uh, it said that it will probably just be an amount of time to make sure that all of her children reach the ages of adulthood so that she is no longer a, a mother to them that can that can uh, uh, have custody of them in any kind of way that could, would cause them any further harm. Now, another question is, this case was obviously very extreme, and this case obviously involved, which I think anybody can agree, is abuse. Parents differ in their parenting across the country, and there are some people who would consider uh, one parent's style of parenting to be extremely strict, not abusive, but extremely strict, and others are far more, uh, you know, gentle uh, in their parenting. Is this going to cause parents to have hesitation in how they parent their children? I don't think so. I think this case obviously crossed the line. But I think that parents 
thinking about how they parent their children, thinking about that this isn't just some sort of twisted sense of uh, instituting values, that has a limit to it. And that limit is obviously when you're denying them things like food, a proper place to sleep, proper clothing, restraining them. I don't think any of those were close calls. Um, but I think this definitely sends a message, especially in this world, even when you see a YouTube influencer talking about parenting, um, that, you know, things may not necessarily be exactly what they appear to be on the surface, I guess, is the overall moral from this. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now to Manchester, New Hampshire, where in one of the most disturbing cases of child abuse we have ever covered on this channel, a New Hampshire father has been convicted for punching his daughter to death before storing her body for months. Adam Montgomery was convicted on five counts, including second degree murder, abuse of a corpse and falsifying evidence among other charges, after jurors deliberated for close to six hours, Montgomery was not present for the emotional and highly disturbing trial, which included testimony surrounding the final days and moments of five-year-old Harmony Montgomery's life. The child was living in a car with her, with her father, stepmother, and siblings when the attack occurred, with Montgomery beating the child to death for soiling herself. The circumstances of this are so awful from every angle that you look at it. Not only the life that this child was enduring before this point, but then you've got this drug-abusing father who beats her to death over something that is as accidental as a child soiling herself, probably because of the stress of the condition she was living in. Uh, that caused her to do it. According to Montgomery's then wife, Kayla Montgomery, the father then folded the five-year-old's body to fit into a duffel bag and concealed her remains for months before she was discarded. In a bold strategic move, Montgomery's defense fully admitted that their client had abused the child's corpse and concealed her death, but contended that his then wife was responsible for the murder. This argument was obviously and ultimately ineffective with jurors who heard disturbing details about the father's alleged eating fast food and shooting up drugs as the child's life slipped away. You, It's hard to imagine a more heartless um, and horrific uh, final moments of this child's life. Montgomery is slated for sentencing sometime in April or May of this year. Meanwhile, the man is already serving decades behind bars on unrelated charges. Um, obviously, the fact that this defendant didn't show up to court for the proceedings didn't score him any points with the jury. But now the question becomes, this is in the hands of the judge. And the judge is going to make a sentencing decision. And 
Will the fact that the defendant didn't show up to the court play a role in that? And should it, I think, is even the more important question. I think the answer to the first question of will it is yes. Even if the judge says it will not or does not, I don't see how it could not. The, you know, part of what judges consider is the recalcitrance of the defendant and whether or not they accepted any responsibility or whether or not they are defiantly uh, refusing to accept any kind of responsibility to the very bitter end. That plays a role in sentencing. Absolutely. And, and, and appropriately so. Um, and I think that the judge will, will either acknowledge or even not acknowledge, but we all know it will be taking place, that his refusal to even show up to court for all of this will be uh, play a role. But the second question is, should it? Um, a defendant has a right to be present during all proceedings. They also have a right not to be. He waived his right to not be there, and the pro trial proceeded without him. Now, you could say, well, listen, no one should be punished for just uh, exercising one of their rights. I agree with that. Um, and so I don't think that the mere fact of his not being present is actually the issue. I think it's what that reflects as far as his attitude. And that might be splitting very thin hairs, but I think it's absolutely what will take place. The other question is, will this create some sort of possible avenue for appeal? And that question's a little more troubling because if the waivers of his presence in court were taken properly, then perhaps there won't be any problems. But if these waivers were based solely upon his attorney saying, yeah, we spoke to him and he doesn't have a problem being here, that may be a problem. Because later on, he could, through some clever appellate work, and attorneys say, I wasn't properly advised of exactly what that meant when I said I didn't want to be in court. And my attorneys didn't properly explain that to me. And none of that's in writing and none of that's on the record in front of a court. So how do we second guess or show that he was properly advised? I am not quite sure of the logistics of it, what exactly took place in this case, but those would be the questions that are most concerning to me. You want to see this conviction stick. You don't want to see there be any way that this person could possibly earn themselves another shot at a trial and have to put everyone through all of this again. Um, one final note on this case that I think is kind of interesting and worth talking about is that these, the probably most important witness presented by the prosecution was the stepmother who was in the, the vehicle and testified to uh, Harmony's death and how that occurred at his hands. And she had originally lied at a grand jury proceeding and been, had been convicted and was serving time for perjury based upon that. And it presents an interesting question of how do jurors respond to people who have shown that they are not trustworthy? have demonstrated their willingness to lie, even under oath at prior proceedings. And I think what it shows you here is that jurors don't, I think, by and large, accept anyone being untruthful. That's a huge obstacle to get past. But I think they can get past it when there's a reason that they can wrap their heads around. 
we don't like people lying, but we can understand people lying if there's a very good reason for it. And I think the reason presented here about her fears and, uh, you know, being in the circumstances that she was and feeling that she might be uh, held accountable for this murder are all kind of understandable. Are they are they uh, forgivable? That's another question. But are they understandable? Perhaps enough for a jury to believe her. The real problem would be if she lied on the stand in front of that jury. And I think that she was able to give testimony that they believe to be truthful at the time she was giving it under oath to this jury. Um, they were able to accept her testimony. And I've seen that before too. I've I've had to, as a prosecutor, present witnesses that have a very, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, colorful past with their own veracity. And those people, as long as you can present that at the time they're in front of that jury, they're being honest. They may have lied in the past, they may have had good or bad reasons for doing it, but they're being honest at the time that they're on the stand. That's what's most important. Finally, let's move to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where trial is underway for a crew member charged in the onset shooting that left a director wounded and a cinematographer dead. Hannah Gutierrez Reed, the armorer on the Rust film set, who is ostensibly responsible for the safety of the weapons, faces charges of involuntary manslaughter and tampering with evidence for the fatal shooting of Helena Hutchins. According to prosecutors, Gutierrez Reed was negligent in her duties, resulting in live ammunition being presented on the set and killing Hutchins. Meanwhile, her defense argued that she is a scapegoat in the case, alleging Alec Baldwin was also negligent in his actions, violating basic safety protocols in handling the firearm. Her defense further contends that a, quote, tragedy occurred on set, but that does not mean a crime was committed. Gutierrez-Reed's trial is expected to last several weeks, with prosecutors expected to call ballistics experts and fellow crew members to testify against the film's armorer. Prosecutors uh, addressed the gun in opening statements, contending that it was a modern weapon, that had been cosmetically aged for the film. We also know that this weapon was uh, destroyed uh, to some extent um, during testing in the buildup of this case. And how will that affect all of this? For Gutierrez Reed, and I'm trying to draw a distinction of her concerns compared to Alec Baldwin's concerns, I don't think it really matters much. Her main issue is not the condition of that gun, whether or not that gun would fire if the trigger was pulled or not. Her issue is how in the world did live ammunition, one, even end up on that set and two, possibly end up in a weapon that was going to be used during filming. That's the biggest problem. And that's why this case, I think, is far stronger than the case against Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin has kind of a built-in defense to say, I was relying on a lot of other people. Nowhere in all of my imagination could i possibly suspect that i would be handed a gun with live ammunition gutierrez reed 
is the person in charge of all that ammunition. She's the person who did and should have known if there was any live ammunition on set. Getting past the question of why there was even live ammunition on set to begin with for any reason. Why was it ever stored in any kind of way that there could be any sort of confusion? That is obviously neglect. But the question here is going to become, does it rise to the uh, level of criminal neglect? Is it so reckless, so grossly negligent and reckless that she should be held responsible for the eventual death that occurred? The other thing that's an issue here is allegedly drug use. Uh, There's evidence that um, perhaps she, you know, she was drinking and using drugs on set. Any other evidence like that of any other negligent conduct, even if it's unrelated to her handling of weapons or ammunition, I think is going to play a pivotal role because it's just going to show generally a negligent and gross indifference towards the safety of others displayed by this woman on this set. Now, does that mean that she's going to have to testify in her own defense? I always get asked that question on every single case. Do you think the defendant will testify? I think this could be one of those rare cases where she might have to. No one else is going to be able to explain why that live ammunition was on set. No one else is going to be able to explain how it could possibly end up in that weapon without her being directly involved. If she can somehow present some explanation to the jury as to how she shouldn't be held responsible for the the live bullets that ended up in that weapon, Maybe she's got a pincher's chance in this case. But, you know, as far as saying Alec Baldwin was involved and he was negligent and, you know, there was uh, other safety issues on the set. I don't think any of that carries the day. She's going to have to explain how someone else or some other reason is responsible for how those bullets ended up in that gun. And we also know that leering in the 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 wings is going to be baldwin's defense team watching this case very very closely um and i think this is an excellent preview for them as to what exactly the prosecution has what they intend to to present um i don't think it's going to be a mirror image because like i explained before i think there's a lot of very distinct issues that relate to baldwin and don't to hannah gutierrez reed but I think they're going to be watching, especially just to see what the prosecution has and what how these uh, witnesses will testify. Many of them are probably going to be the same witnesses, how they testify, how they stand up under cross-examination. What are the perhaps issues that they might be able to exploit as well? And I do think, and I'll still stand by it, that they're going to have much more trouble with Alec Baldwin's case, if that ever heads to trial, than they are with this current case. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. As we said, trial is ongoing. But in the meantime, that is our show this week. We thank you so much to all the listeners and viewers for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. Even on TikTok now at Joshua Ritter ESQ. You can also find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.